Good morning, folks. My name is Kevin. I'm a pastor. I serve here on, on staff at Bayview Glen Church as the multiplication and mobilization pastor, uh, or the M&M pastor, and it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, whenever we have baptisms like this and testimonies like this, um, I always feel like, man, we should just, we should just stop because the gospel's already been preached. You guys don't really need to hear from me. Um, but unfortunately, you do actually need to hear from me. <laughs> but guys, it's good to be here. I'm glad to, uh, to be preaching again today. Um, but um, we've just kind of witnessed new life, new birth, right? Um, but this week, uh, we, we lost someone. We lost one of our elders. Uh, his name was Heinz, and a uh, godly man. He had the distinct privilege of having served under every lead pastor at Baby Glen Church since 1978. And so um, he'll be dearly missed, but if you would join me in prayer, we're going to take a moment to thank God for Heinz uh, and to pray for his family. So can we do that together? Let's pray. Father, as we come on this morning where we have seen your life and your activity at work in the lives of, of, um, of these two women, God, and, and reminded of the life that you have placed in us, God, and even in that we, we think about um, the death of one of your saints, Heinz, um, who is with you in glory now, but who will be missed so terribly here on earth. We thank you for his life. We thank you for the way that you created him, for his legacy, for the way he loved people, for the way he loved this church, for the contribution that he made, Lord, in all the ways that people saw and, and in the many ways that people did not see in the way he honored you and glorified you and worked for the for the sake of your kingdom. So God, would you bless him even as he rejoices before your throne today. Um, but you, would you remember his family, his wife June, his kids Danny, Andrew, their families. Lord, would you bring them comfort in this moment? Would you be to them everything that they need? Your word tells us that you are a strong tower, a mighty fortress, that you are a sun and a shield. So God, would you be all those things to them in their moment of need in these days ahead? But now, Lord, as we come around this word together, would you enlighten our hearts, Holy Spirit, would you open up our spiritual eyes and ears to see you and to hear from you this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. My first job after I graduated from university was working for a foundation of a geriatric care facility. This was a, um, colloquially, it was an old folks home. We don't call it that, but that's basically what it was, uh, a home for, for the elderly. Um, we ran a lot of fundraising initiatives uh, as part of this foundation, and one of those was an annual golf tournament. And so we had this golf tournament one year, and my job that day was to oversee a hole where one of our sponsors had sponsored a par three so that whoever got a hole in one in, on that hole would win a car. So my job was to sit there all day waiting for someone to get a hole in one, right? Most boring job ever because I'd just be stuck there, or so I thought. So I'm sitting there, and I remember the hole very well. It was an Angus Glen, and it was a elevated tee box. It was a green uh, coming, coming down, and I was sitting on, on a hill overlooking the green, but I, could have, I had a clear line of sight to the tee box as well. So I'm, I'm, kinda, I'm already kind of bored. It's like only been two groups playing, but I'm like, oh, I'm going to be here all day. This third group comes up, and the first player puts his ball, tees it up. He addresses the ball. And he looks like he knows what he's doing, okay? He takes a swing, and, the, and it's just beautifully, beautifully struck. And it just sails through the air, and I can see that it's going to hit the green. So I'm paying attention now, right? I'm watching it, I'm like, 
Where's it going to go? Where's it going to go? Where's it going to go? It's probably going to hit close to the pin. The ball takes a bounce on the green, and then it disappears from sight. And in my mind, I thought, what just happened? Because the last thing I thought that would happen was that it would go into the hole, which is what it did. My mind, in those first seconds after I saw it, my mind told me that it didn't go in the hole. It actually warped into another dimension because that's a more plausible explanation <laughs> for what happened. My rational mind just could not comprehend that this ball had bounced on the green and landed into the cup. In my mind, I said, this is a miracle. It is miraculous. And if you look at the Google definition for miracle, this is what it says. It says, it is a highly improbable or extraordinary event, development, or accomplishment that brings very welcome consequences. I think the consequence was very welcome for this player as he walked away with a brand new car. But there's a second definition that Google offers, and it is this. It says, a miracle is a surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by nature or scientific laws and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency. I think the second definition is what happened amongst those who had witnessed, amongst those who had really partaken of the miracle of Jesus multiplying the loaves and the fish, the miracle of being with Jesus and each other, the miracle of being warmed and filled and blessed in that, on that day on that grassy mountainside. So this is what the miracle that we talked about last week. So for those of you who weren't here, we're going to look at that passage again, John chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. And this is what it says. Um, if you want to turn in your Bibles, you can take it from the seat back in front of you. John chapter 6 is where we're going. You can open up your, your iPhones, look at the Bible app, whatever app you're using. But we're going to be looking at John chapter 6. Um, so you can follow along as I read. Verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountainside, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. These people, this crowd, have enjoyed this picnic with Jesus. But they've come to the realization as they have eaten their fill that there hadn't been cartloads of fish and loaves wheeled in, wheeled in from Bethsaida. That Jesus has simply made his way unassumingly through the crowds, distributing food, distributing kindness. And somehow they each had their fill of both of these things. 
So in John chapter 6, verse 14, as we continue, we see this happening. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. These people were reminded of the great prophet Moses, a prophet extraordinaire, if you will, who led their people out of bondage in Egypt, who fed them manna from heaven and who drew water from a stone. He was a man of signs and a man of miracles who himself wrote of a prophet that was to come one day. Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, says Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. And for these first, first century Jews, this would be the final prophet, the Messiah. This would be the deliverer who would bring them out of, from under the yoke of Roman rule. He was more than just a prophet. He would be a king to rule in power and authority. That is the expectation of this crowd as Jesus performs these signs and miracles before them. Because surely this man who heals the sick, surely this man who has fed 20,000 people with a boy's bag lunch, surely he is greater even than Elisha, even greater than Moses himself. Because this is real power they're dealing with. So what is their human response? Let's look at John chapter 6, verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The human response is to take Jesus by force and make him king. You see, these people have taken this miracle, this providential sign, which speaks to the totality of their human situation. It speaks to their weakness. It speaks to their brokenness. It speaks to their hunger. It speaks for their needs. They've taken it and they've reduced it to one of military and political expediency. They just want a guy to come along to take up arms and to solve their problems. And there are 5,000 men 5,000 men, they are ready to fight. They are ready to violently install Jesus as their general and king. This is a small army we're talking about. And so Jesus removes himself from the crowd. He removes himself from the crowd. If you read through the Gospels, you see Jesus do this a lot, right? He'll kind of, he'll step away up on a mountainside to a lonely place and he'll pray. As I read through the Gospels, I, t I tend to, I, I like to think, maybe Jesus was an introvert, okay? Because I'm an introvert. If you ask my wife and my kids, it's like, I like to hide myself away once in a while just to get a bit of alone time, get a time to pray. I'm an introvert. So it, it, it would make me happy if Jesus was an introvert. But Jesus also has this way of just disappearing from crowds, right? We saw this happen when he healed the, he healed the crippled man at the, the pool of Bethesda. The crowds came in, and he just kind of disappeared. Nobody knew where he went. You'll see this a little later on as well when the Jews try to stone him at the temple, and he just disappears. He has this way of disappearing. I think Jesus actually is a ninja. Actually, I think he's, an, I think he's a ninja introvert He's, he's ninja introvert Jesus. We've seen weary Jesus. We've seen angry Jesus. We've seen party. I think he's ninja introvert Jesus. That's who I, No, guys, that's... Okay, no, you don't... Okay, take that off. Take that off. Don't write that in your notebooks. But the point is that Jesus doesn't go anywhere he doesn't want to go. He's in full control 
of his situation. If you read through John, John tells us that his hour was not yet come. Jesus says that about himself as well. He says, my hour has not yet come because he's on a mission. He knows where he's going. He knows what's going to happen, and nothing is going to happen to him that is outside of that mission because he is Lord. And we see another miraculous display of Jesus' power and authority after this scenario. So let's read through John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21 together. When evening came, his disciple went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, John doesn't tell us why the disciples headed back to Capernaum in the boat without Jesus. In the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, where this is recorded as well, Jesus is the one who actually sends them on ahead of himself. He sends them on ahead of himself. And so the, the, the disciples began their journey when evening came. So darkness is falling, and they're rowing through the night when they are hit by this storm. According to scholars, the distance disciples needed to travel to get from where they were to Capernaum is anywhere between six to eight miles, depending on where their starting point was. And so they had been, uh, so three to four miles into the road, they would be about halfway there on the, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee when Jesus approached. And so the disciples see this figure coming at them in the middle of a storm, in the middle of the sea, and understandably, they're frightened, Right? And in the same way that Jesus perceived that the crowd was ready to take him by force, Jesus perceives that his disciples do not recognize him and that they are afraid. Because the disciples are tired from the ridiculous amount of rowing that they've been doing, all right? Uh, the other Gospels tell us that Jesus approached them at, during the fourth watch. It was anywhere between 3 and 6 a.m., and so they have been rowing since nightfall, since evening. So they've been rowing probably between six to eight hours, and they've only traveled three to four miles. Right? Three miles is what? About five kilometers? You could probably run five kilometers in about 30 minutes, right? So they've been rowing a long time, and they've been making very little headway. And so they're, they're exhausted. They're probably a little out of their minds. And it's hard to see clearly in a storm, right? And so they think maybe it's a ghost. Again, in the other Gospels that record this story, it says explicitly that they thought it was a ghost. And this ghost, this apparition, is getting closer to them. So you can understand, they're afraid. Now, according to Pastor Dave, who has a lot more fancy Bible learning under his belt than I do, he said this to me the other, when we were talking about yesterday. He said, Kevin, do you know the people of first century Palestine believed that the disembodied souls of the dead dwelt in the waters of the Sea of Galilee, which were notorious for being tumultuous? I said, man, that is amazing. I'm going to use that, and I'm going to quote you. So the, the people of first century Palestine would have believed that the dead souls were gathered in the sea. And so it's reasonable that the, that the disciples may have thought that it was a ghost because this was part of the, um, the beliefs of the people of, of that time. Pastor Dave also said something about swirling chaos and the Leviathan, but he lost me at disembodied souls. What can I say? <laughs> Jesus assures his disciples with these words. He says, it 
is I. The Greek says, ego eimi. Ego eimi can be translated, I am. Not simply, it is I, but I am. I am are the words that God said to Moses at the burning bush when he revealed himself to him. I am. You see, John paints a picture for us of Jesus, and we see that he is greater than Moses. For the first century Jew, Moses was the ideal prophet and king. And John actually mentions Moses 12 times explicitly in the first half of this gospel. But what John wants us to know that Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than any prophet, that he is indeed God in the flesh. John wants us to know that Jesus is God. I want you to picture this scene on the water. The storm is whipping all over the place. The disciples' hair is all up in their face. They're soaked to the bone. The waters are frothing, and when they look out across the sea, there is Jesus coming towards them. And he's not being battered by the storm. He's not fighting against the wind. And for all we know, he may, maybe he's not even wet. He is walking purposefully towards them. And he is a man in full control of himself. He is a man in full control of his circumstances and full control of his environment. Jesus is God. And because Jesus is God, we owe he is also Lord. For me, this scene is Jesus at the height of his lordship. He's been on his own. He's prayed, and now it's simply time to make his way to his disciples. He just, got, he just has to get to them. So Jesus walking on water is not extraordinary for him. It's just a matter of course. He just needs to get from point A to point B. He didn't have to work extra hard to muster up the power to contravene the laws of gravity and thermodynamics. It was meant to be a spectacle to be gawked at. Nobody's watching. Nobody's looking. It's not for further proof to the disciples of his identity. In this scene, his statement, ego eimi, I am, reveals his identity more powerfully than anything. This is the Lord of time and space of matter, and of physics. He's simply exercising his authority over his realm. When you look at Christ figures that are portrayed in popular culture, they always exert energy and stamina in order to perform supernatural feats. Look at Superman. All right, Superman and his ultimate enemy, Doomsday, right? They fight, and Doomsday almost kills, well, he does kill Superman. I'm not going to get into the details because it's already sounding really nerdy. It's actually going to get even nerdier in a few seconds. But Superman just has to exert all of his energy in order to defeat Doomsday. You have Luke Skywalker, when he uses the Force, and he's on Dagobah with Yoda, and he has to lift the X-Wing up out of the swamp, right? And it's like, it's hard work to use the Force. You have Gandalf, when he's on... You're laughing because this is as nerdy as it sounds, right? You have Gandalf, and he's in Moria, right? And the Balrog shows up on the bridge of Khazad-dûm, and he takes his staff and he says, you shall not pass! And then he fights him, right? Tooth and nail, and it takes everything he's got. Yes, I'm a nerd. I'm proud. But with Jesus, it's effortless. It's effortless. Water into wine? 
multiplying loaves and fish, healing disease, walking on water, in a storm, in the dark. It's nothing to Jesus. And we in our minds, we tend to start to think, we want to know how does he do it? How does Jesus do these things? But the how question really is besides the point, right? We might ask, did he suspend natural laws? Did he draw on natural forces that are not accessible to mere mortals? Or is it something totally beyond our comprehension? The point isn't to answer those questions. The point is that he is God, and he can do what he wants. But what he wants is for you to believe that is what he wants, for you to believe. You see, the faith of the true Christian or the follower of Jesus, the one who recognizes his lordship, is actually built on miracles. Our faith is built on miracles. You might say the Christian speaks the language of miracles. We speak the language of miracles. And in that, we are unique. Yes, there are miracles in other religious traditions. But if you were to take all of those away, the miracles away from other religious traditions, the basic tenets of, those faith, of, of, the, of their religion would stand. If you were to take away the virgin birth, the miracle of the virgin birth, if you were to take away the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that God became man and then died for our sins and rose again from the dead to defeat sin and death, if you were to take that away, everything goes out the window. We'd have nothing left to stand on. Because fundamentally, for most other religions, when all is stripped away, it's what you do and how you live that counts. It's what you do and how you live that will save you. But for the Christian, we can do nothing to save ourselves. All we have is to trust in the love and providence of a miraculous God who takes spiritually dead men and women and breathes into them new life. You know, it's easy for us to listen to the stories of Jesus multiplying loaves and fish or walking on water and listen to it from a distance through time and space and wonder if its fantastical nature might actually strain its believability. Because even among Christians, there are those who believe that miracles have ceased after the apostolic age. After the apostles finished all of their miracles, miracles have ceased. There are some people who believe that and that God no longer operates in that fashion. So that's kind of one end of the spectrum. And then you have another end of the spectrum where some believers, some Christians, um, see miracles everywhere. They see it in the dewdrops on blades of grass every morning. They see it in the vacant parking spot right outside the mall doors. Yay, I've got parking favor. What I would like for us to consider today is this, is where we fall along that spectrum, where we fall along that continuum, and why. And unfortunately, I'm not here to offer you answers, but I just want you to, to ruminate on it. I will say this, I li we live in a world where, where what we can see, touch, taste, hear, and smell, and deduce is really only a part of what is, only a part of what is out there. And for the record, I believe that God does intervene in ways that cannot be explained in the lives of his people in order to show his faithfulness to us and ultimately to bring glory, glory to himself. I think we heard a little, about it, a little bit of that this morning from our testimonies. Last week, I shared about God healing my wife, Grace. Was that mystery? Was that mystery pain a miracle? The, the, the healing of that pain? We believe that it is. We believe that it was. You might think differently. The question is why? 
and for you to take some time to think about how you feel about miracles and what they say to you about God and about Jesus. Eric, Eric Metaxas, who was a biographer, he wrote, um, he wrote a couple of biographies, uh, a seminal one on the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another one on William Wilberforce, uh, for which he's most well-known. But he wrote a book called Miracles, What They Are, Why They Happen, and How They Can Change Your Life. Now, if I could, I don't have a lot of time, but if I could, I would, I would tell you a lot more um, in line with what Eric Metaxas says in his books. But I do highly recommend it. If you want to hear more about miracles from a Christian perspective, um, please pick up this book and, and read it. This one's from the library. So if you want to go to Hillcrest to get it, unfortunately I have it, but I'll be returning it soon. Eric Metaxas um, says this. He says, a miracle is when something outside time and space enters time and space, whether to wink at us or poke at us briefly or to come in and dwell among us for three decades. In this book, he tells the miracle stories of people that he knows personally and has vetted carefully. And this is what he says. He says, I heard some stories that were very likely were miracles, but that might have been natural coincidences. The slightest question in my mind whether something was genuinely miraculous eliminated, from, eliminated it from consideration. But all in all, listening to people tell these stories of God's direct intervention in their lives was tremendously affecting. It is humbling and exhilarating, and it can be simultaneously enlightening and stupefying because the idea that the God of the universe would humble himself to touch the lives of any of us is, in the end, far beyond our full comprehension. God reaches out and touches the lives of those who call him Lord. And I want to share with you just a story, one that, was hum that is humbling and exhilarating. Several years back, Bayview Glen was part of sending a medical missions team to northern Uganda. And it was made up a number of folk from our congregation, doctors and nurses. Uh, Curtis Legeen, who you've seen up here as a, as a guest worship leader, he was on that trip as well. Um, Joyce Tulla, who is uh, part of our congregation. I don't know if she's here um, today. She hasn't been well, but she was also a nurse um, on this trip. The team had an opportunity to serve the inmate population of a Ugandan prison on this trip. And the majority of the medical issues that these inmates had were STDs. And the team had already treated a number of cases in the country prior to arriving at this prison. So Dr. Ken Liu, who was on this team, and a nurse, Mei Tao, were tasked with administering the medicine. But they knew that their supplies were dwindling, their supplies were, were depleted. So Mei rummaged through the box of meds. They kept all their medicine in one box. They rummaged through the meds to see if they could find any to treat these STDs, and she found none. They passed the box to another young man, Jacob, who was part of this team. He searched through the box, and he couldn't find any. And then Dr. Ken took a last, last pass at it, and he managed to pull one package that could uh, help eight people out of that box. And they, so he said, if we can help eight, we're going to help eight. And so they called the inmates in. And so all the inmates came in, and they administered this medicine to them. And after the eight was done, they said, look, let's take another look. Maybe there's more. So they look, and they pull out one package. And so they treat the next eight. 
This box was kept under the table where they were treating these patients. And it came to a point, as, as Dr. Ken tells it to me, he said they would reach under the box, under the table into the box, and they would pull out medicine. And every time they did that, they were able to administer this to every single inmate that there was until the very last person, again and again, when there should be none left, there was more. This is how May personally described it to me yesterday when I saw her. This isn't a story that you hear about from somewhere out there and you don't know what the source is. This was experienced firsthand by members of this very congregation, maybe even a person you sat beside one day in, in this worship center. And in the words of the, the team itself, it was a miracle. It was a miracle. And I think you'd be surprised if you were to ask the people around you if they've ever experienced a miracle. Because I believe that many of you in this room would be able to recount at least one or two instances of an unexplainable work of divine agency that have impacted you favorably. We heard from Stephanie in her own words, miracles that pointed her to Jesus. Whether it was a healing, whether it's a, what you might say was a happy coincidence, these miracles, my friends, point to Jesus. They point to Jesus and the life that we have in him. Now, the miracles we see recounted here talk to the, speak to the lordship of Christ, but maybe you're not even there. Maybe you're just like, I just want to know that God exists. I just want to know that there's somebody out there. And maybe miracles will point you in that direction. I want you to listen to the reds of Frederick Buchner. Frederick, Buch Frederick Buchner was a, a pastor, a preacher, a guy I really look up to when it comes to preaching. And he wrote this. He says, we all want to be certain. We all want proof. But the kind of proof we tend to want, scientifically or philosophically demonstrable proof, that would silence all doubts once and for all, would not in the long run, I think, answer the fearful depths of our need at all. For what we need to know, of course, is not just that God exists, not just that beyond the steely brightness of the stars, there is a cosmic intelligence of some kind that keeps the whole show going, but that there is a God right here in the thick of our day-by-day -day lives who may not be writing messages about himself in the stars, but who in one way or another is trying to get messages through our blindness as we move around down here, knee-deep in the fragrant muck and misery and marvel of the world. It is not objective proof of God's existence that we want, but whether we use religious language for it or not, we want the experience of God's presence. That is the miracle that we are really after. And that is also, I think, the miracle that we really get. In a way, we've all been witness to a miracle today. Not the miracle itself, but the afterglow. We witnessed our sisters walk through the waters of baptism, and we see the effects of this miracle of rebirth and regeneration in their life, this miracle of the presence of Jesus. The inner working, friends, of the transformed heart is no less miraculous than the outer healing of a transformed body. For some reason, we think that when something contravenes the law of nature 
is something that we can't give scientific, empirical evidence for, then it's a miracle. But what happens inside of your heart when you who were dead in your sins and trespasses and transgressions, when God turns you around and breathes new life into you, that is no less miraculous than the healing of a body. And that is why whenever someone comes to faith, the angels rejoice in heaven. That's just how miraculous it is. I hope, friends, that it reminds you, those of us who follow Jesus, these miracles of the same miraculous work in our own lives. And for those of you who are speaking today, I hope it encourages you to place your active trust in Jesus who heals you completely inside and out. Praise God that he is a God of miracles and that we can trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We are thankful for you and for your loving hand in our lives. Lord, would you continue to guide us and shape us and mold us and draw us nearer to yourself, Lord. Give us eyes, spiritual eyes to see you, spiritual hearts to know you. As we look out into the world and we observe the miracles all around us, Lord, would you give us eyes of faith to recognize that they are indeed the works of your hands. Father, we praise you, and as we respond in song, God, would you remind us of the work that you have done in our own lives, the miracle of rebirth, that we might rejoice, that we might give thanks to you in everything. In Christ's name we pray, amen.